Today, we are beginning a new series in the Bible. We're going to be studying through the life of Moses and see what we can learn from Moses. The sermon today is entitled, Moses and the Midwives. We actually won't get to Moses yet, but the midwives are going to play an important role in his story. I want to begin by sharing with you some information about a man. His name is David Green. Some of you may have heard of him. All of you know about him. David Green was born in Oklahoma to a family that was dirt poor. His father was a minister. His grandfather was a minister. His sisters would grow up to marry ministers and his brothers would become ministers. It was thought that David Green would be a minister as well. He was not and he is not. David Green grew up during the Depression. His family lived in a two-bedroom house. His father pastored a 35-member congregation. And had it not been for the pound-ins, some of you may remember that expression, a pound of sugar, a pound of flour, the people in the church would bring the food to the family. Had it not been for that, they never would have survived. The girls lived in one, or stayed in one bedroom, mother and father in the other, and the boys slept on cots in the kitchen at night. So David Green grew up dirt poor. He has now amassed a fortune of nearly $5 billion. Along with his wife, daughter, and two sons, he presides over Hobby Lobby. He comes from a family of pastors, as I said, and he was expected to be one. But he failed the seventh grade, and he was struggling in high school. During his junior year, a teacher told him about a work-study program. They said you could get a job out in the community and earn high school credit while you worked and while you were earning an income. Well, he jumped at it and he secured a position at a local five and dime. And he was doing menial tasks. But the owner of the store liked him and decided to mentor him. And so David Green was taught all about the retail business. Eventually, he would start his own business. His wife and two preteen sons worked in the kitchen pasting picture frames together. Later, they cleared out the garage and that became a factory for them. The first store that David Green opened was in 1972. It was a 300 square foot store in Oklahoma City. The next store had 6,000 square feet. Now, he has 520 superstores in 42 states employing 23,000 people. Green has always given 50% of pre-tax profits to charity from the beginning of his business. 1.4 billion pieces of gospel literature, including Bibles, have been given to 103rd world countries. 
He funds Christian universities, builds churches, and does many other things with his charitable contributions. He is generous with his employees, paying the entry-level position of $14 an hour. He closes his stores on Sunday so employees can worship or spend time with their families. His convictions regarding abortion have brought him into direct conflict with the United States government. He refuses to pay for four specific products that are abortifacient drugs mandated by Obamacare. The case is at the Supreme Court with expected rulings to come the end of June. If he loses the case, his non-compliance fine will be $1.3 million per day or $36,000 per employee. What would you do if you were David Green? What would you do if the government required you to do something against your conscience? What if it was mandated by law with stiff penalties? What if it was mandated with possible prison sentence? What if it was mandated that those who disobeyed could incur the death sentence? What would you do? What would God expect you to do? And that's what we are going to study today. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 1. Those of you who are learning about the Bible, Exodus is the very second book of the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, so go all the way to the front of the Bible. You'll go through Genesis and you will come to Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, we will read verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Well, that text assumes that you have some background understanding to what has taken place. And here's what has happened. Joseph, as a young man, was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was taken to Egypt, and it was there that he lived for many years as a slave. At age 30, he became the second in charge of the great nation of Egypt. Later, his father, brothers, and their families would come to Egypt and they would stay there and live. We can read briefly about that in chapter 1 of Exodus, verses 5 through 7. So let's read that. All those who were descendants of Jacob, that's Joseph's father, were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. All this took place about 1,750 years before Christ. Now, they were there several hundred years. There's a new pharaoh or a new king. He doesn't know the story of Joseph, or if he does, he doesn't care about it. 
he feels threatened by the presence of the Jewish people that are there. We go to verse 9, same chapter. So the Pharaoh, or the king, said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. So over the course of several hundred years, many, many Hebrews had been born. But come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. In other words, they enslaved them, turned them into slaves. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. They could not crush these people. Whatever they did made them stronger, and they multiplied. And so Pharaoh became more and more nervous. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. That means harshness. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So that's the background to the story. Moses will be born in the next chapter, but to understand that, we need to work carefully through the first chapter and talk about this issue of the government. What do you do if the government is telling you to do something that is against your conscience? So let's go to verses 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shiphrah, and the name of the other was Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Now these two ladies are Egyptians. Their king of Egypt has told them what to do. When you go to deliver the babies of the Hebrews, if the baby is a female, fine. If the baby is a male, you are to slay that baby. You are to take its life. That's what they were told to do. What would you do? Now, if they do not obey the king, what do you think will happen to them? They're going to be killed. This is a real situation. This is not just a fairy tale made up in the Bible, so it's a nice, juicy, and interesting story. These are real people in a real life situation. What would you do? The government is requiring you to do something against your conscience. What would you do? Well, here's what they did. Verse 17 says, but the midwives feared God. They feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. They were more afraid of what God would do than they were with what the king would do. 
And so they determined they would obey God. Watch what happens. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? Verse 19. And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Now, that's possible. If you were one of these women, and you were called into Pharaoh, or knew someday you would be, Maybe you'd be dragging your feet to get to the births, right? They may have lied, or it may be that it is true. They were dragging their feet to get there. They didn't want to be there. They didn't want to know if it was a male or a female. They'd come in, and if there was a medical problem after, help. We don't know exactly what is going on, so I want you to be careful that you don't establish your ethical arguments on something that is not giving us all the information. To say, to walk out of here today and say, see, because of the priorities of life, God blessed these women for lying. Maybe he did, I don't know. But it's a weak argument from this story because we don't know all the story. Do you understand what I'm saying? So in the pecking order of ethics, obviously taking somebody's life has got to be pretty high up there. And I know you've sat in classes and you've debated what would you have done in World War II if a Jewish family came to you and said, can you hide us, can you protect us, and they're up in your attic, and then here comes the the Nazis and, and they're pounding on your door and they say to you, are you harboring any Jews? What would you say? You know, would that be an ethical debate at that time? All I'm saying is the story is not entirely told here for us to come away with an entire ethical position. Are, are you good with that? Are you good with that? But watch this. Verse 20, therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. God blessed them because they feared him more than the king. God and God's government was more important to them than the king and the king's government. They decided they would rather obey God than to obey man. And God not only blessed them, but he blessed the Hebrew nation as well. Well, we continue reading. Then God, verse 20, Then God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. He gave them families as well. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. We'll study that one next week. Now we can go to this story and we can sit back and we can say, it's pretty clear to me what should be done. 
It's pretty clear what I hope I would have done. But now let's go to the New Testament and let's look at a passage of Scripture that actually is very difficult and confusing to understand. And yet it bears heavily upon this topic of government authority and those of us who are subject to it. So let's turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Those of you who are not familiar with your Bibles, if you'll find the New Testament, one of the Gospels would be like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. If you find those, good. Go to the right. You'll go past the book of Acts and you will come to the book of Romans. Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church that was at Rome. We simply call it Romans. In Romans chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Follow along, please. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Well, that's pretty straightforward, yet in its application, it's rather confusing. In fact, even in the Apostle Paul's day, he ran up against governments that were trying to get him to turn away from serving God. And some of the very people he wrote to gave their lives in the cause of Christ because they simply refused to say Caesar was Lord. So how do you balance this? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. And what would you do if you were a church member in 1939 in Germany? And all that is taking place is taking place. I heard a man interviewed on the radio just recently. He's written a, a book about things that happened to the Christian church in Germany as the Nazis were taking over. And he said that he interviewed a woman. They had a church that was near the railroad tracks. And every Sunday, those trains filled with Jews who were being taken to the concentration camp. And she said, we knew what was happening to them. Every Sunday at the same time, 
because of German punctuality, a train load of Jews was being hauled away to a death camp. Came by their church, right by their open windows. And so what would happen is as they were coming by, the Jews that were in the train would scream out and cry, help us, help us. Well, the people in church didn't know what to do. And so what they decided to do, the best thing would be to suppress their conscience the best they could. And so every time the train came by, they would schedule a song to be sung. They would sing from the hymnal. And the louder the people cried for help, the louder they sang their songs. What would you do if the government was like that? Would you say, well, Paul says, be subject to the governing authorities. They're established by God. And there's nothing we can do I'm sure the midwives that crossed their mind, there's nothing we can do. We've been told to do it. But the heroes are those who stand for what is right. And folks, the world in which we live is rapidly changing in its environment until it will be said that evil is called good and good is called evil. The evil will be rewarded and the good will be persecuted. Those days are coming. What are we going to do? What will be our guideline? How far are we willing to go? Are you willing to lose a five billion dollar industry because of abortion? What other things might you be required by law to do? Read the book of Revelation and you, we might not all agree on what is going to happen in particular, but we do know this. There will be a tremendous abuse of authority by a government that will require people to do things that are against God. That's where we're going. So how, how do we understand this chapter 13? First of all, let's look at the origin of the state's authority. When I talk about state, I'm not talking about Tennessee. I'm talking about government. Origin of state's authority, verses 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. In spite of the defects of government, Paul emphatically declared its authority comes from God. Wow, that's unnerving when you think of what's happened in the, you know, 1900 years since he wrote this. Look at what government has done. Because the state's authority has been delegated to it by God, watch this, and is therefore not intrinsic but derived, 
it meant that it must never be absolutized. That means that the government got its authority from God. The government did not have the authority intrinsically. It got it from God. Therefore, because it got it from God, their authority is not absolute. Does that make sense? Only God's authority is absolute. And worship is due to God and God alone. Government must be respected as a divine institution, but to give it our blind, unqualified allegiance would be tantamount to idolatry. Christians died because they refused to call Caesar Lord. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If uh, you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, go to the right. But before you leave Romans 13, keep your hand there because we will come back. Ephesians 1, we'll, we'll pick, we'll, we'll get into a long sentence. If we start at the beginning, it'll be too many verses. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Talking about Jesus. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? So he's talking about what our hope is because of Jesus, what our inheritance is because of Jesus, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he, the Father, worked in Christ, the Son, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, that means rule, and power, that means authority, and might and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that age which is to come. And he, the Father, put all things under his, the Son, his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Ultimate authority rests in God, and he has given it to Christ. Now let's go back to Romans 13. Romans 13, we look at verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Another purpose of the state is to reward and promote good behavior and to punish and restrain bad behavior. The good was to be rewarded, the evil was to be punished. Now this complicated passage I'm trying to simplify as much as I can. And we're going to boil it down to three simple facts. And that is this. These things are crystal clear when it comes 
to our relationship to government. Look at Romans 13, verse 6. Romans 13, verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Followers of God living in a government that taxes will pay their taxes. It is not a symbol of godliness to not pay taxes. We're told to pay them. All right? So, some of you are very obedient to God in some areas of, of your life. And one of them, paying taxes. God wants us to. But there are other things. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. You'll have to go to the right in your Bible. And um, Hebrews will probably be the largest book you'll come to and go past it. And you'll come to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance, that's institution of man, for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. We're going to pay taxes and we're going to obey the laws. Pay taxes and obey the laws. Now, look at First Peter or First Timothy, go back to the left. First Timothy chapter two. Verses one and two. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Obey the laws, pay your taxes, pray for your rulers. You know, I don't know about you, but I find it easier to pay taxes and obey the law than it is to pray for people I don't like. And somebody asked me, well, do you, do you pray for our country's rulers? And when I told them what I pray for, they quit asking me. And, I, and I'm convinced that that's not the type of prayer the Lord wanted me to really be praying for them. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'll let you guess. We are to pray for them. Now, this is a principle that permeates Christian life. We're talking about government. We're talking about institutions. We're talking about organizations. You don't like something going on in the leadership of this denomination? Pray for the rulers. It's so much easier just to write critical essays about their positions and how 
legalistic we may think they are or are not or how they've gone astray or whatever. It's just so much easier to do that. But this is talking about, as best we can, being at peace with people. What should Christians do if the state misuses its God-given authority and begins to promote evil and punish good? What if it ceases to be godly and becomes the devil's and actually persecutes the church instead of protecting it and gets its authority from the dragon instead of from God? What should we do then? Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 29. Acts chapter 6, verse 29. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Thank you. I wondered why there was no verse 29 in chapter 6. You may wonder, who writes these sermons? I do, but I also type them, and that's the problem. <laughs> Acts 5.29 says, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And that's it. Pray for the rulers. Pay your taxes. Obey the laws. Understand that the government's been established by God, but that means God is the ultimate authority, and we will obey God rather than men. And God blessed the midwives because that was their position. And so today, I have a question for you, and that is, is there anyone here who would like to say to God, I pray to have the courage to follow you wherever that will take me. If you would like to say that to the Lord, I invite you to stand.